Welcome to the True Voice podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. This is season two, and we're keeping it going with compelling guests with interesting stories. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Salu, a physician with an incredible story who is fighting for more equality for medical professionals. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, LaShawn, and a huge privilege for me to take part in this conversation. We appreciate you joining us. Now, I want to get started from the beginning of your story. So, So let's go back. You were born in Sierra Leone, the first of 10 children. Your father was a farmer. And at a young age, you were adopted by your aunt. You moved to a city called Bo. Now, how did that all come about? And what was childhood like for you? I don't remember a great deal about those early beginnings. What I do know is that uh, my mother also came from a very big family. Older uh, sister, my aunt, didn't have any children. And she'd been desperate to have a child to look after. So when my mother had her first child, you can imagine what a trauma it was for my mother to actually give me up as mm. her first and only child at the time. As you've said, she went on to have uh, 10 more children, uh, nine more children, actually 10, because one of the children died following uh, in early childhood. But I was adopted by my aunt who was keen to take me to the uh, city. Now, I was born in a little village just outside that city called Bo. And as you say, my father, my parents were subsistence farmers. They hadn't gone to school, so they didn't really appreciate what we call Western education was really all about. So that was what I remember, really, of my early beginnings. So I went to live with my aunt in, in Bo. Now, would you go back and visit? You know, what was the relationship there? I was mainly in Bo. Remember, I was very young at the time. I think I must have been about three, possibly four at the time that I was taken away. So the opportunity for me to visit my family back in my village wasn't really in my gift. However, I do recall that my mother came over to Bo quite frequently to see me. You can imagine the trauma of that separation, having been you know, separated from her first-born boy. And right. You may appreciate that in many communities in Africa, in Asia, and in other parts of the world, boys are held as prized possessions, as it were, because they carry on the family tradition. So you can imagine what a trauma it must have been for my family to, for me to have been taken away. Sure. Now, you mentioned education. That becomes an important part of your story. Growing up, uh, uh, an interesting story I heard about you kind of studying under the streetlights. Tell me more about that. Well, even before that, LaShawn, if I can just take you back. First of all, sure. I, haven't, I hadn't even got to that stage. When my mother, when my aunt brought me to Bo, the intention was not to send me to school. She herself didn't have a Western education. She hadn't been to school. Mm. So she wasn't, she hadn't taken me with the intention of sending me to school. And in fact, I passed school age before I was even considered for school. And the way that came about was interesting. I lived in a little community where there were other boys. 
primarily boys, that I played with. And I was fascinated by the fact that they woke up in the morning, went away to school, came back, and they spoke in this very strange language called English. And uh, they were reading books, and they were writing things on their, you know, of their homework and so on. And I got fascinated by all of this. And I said to the boys, well, can you teach me to read and write? And they said, well, yeah, but there are conditions to you being taught to read and write. The first is you will help to clean our shirts and trousers and so on and iron them for us. I thought, well, all right, I, I can put up with that. And the second was that you'd be part of our football team. We had two, two football teams that played against uh, each other. And I joined that team. And I wasn't very good at football, but at least I made, I made up the numbers. So I accepted on those two conditions. And on that basis, I got taught to read and I got taught to write. And I took it up very seriously because I was really very intent on doing what they were doing. It took a while and, you know, I could begin to read and write. I, most of the time, I didn't really understand what I was reading. Oh, I didn't even understand what I was writing, but I was very keen to continue to learn. And I continued to learn. And the years went by. I think I must have been about six or seven by this time. And one day I went home and one of my uncle's uh, friends brought a newspaper. I dropped it on the table. I picked it up and I started to read. And he listened to me for a while. He turned over to my aunt and said, why is this boy not going to school? I don't understand it. You know, this boy can now read. And I sort of quietly said, and I can write too. She, obviously, a lot of pressure was put upon her. And ultimately, she took me to school. That's how my schooling started. Uh, I don't even know when I was born. I don't know my date of birth. That was an interesting part of my story. So you can imagine the kind of background that I came from. So I went to school and a date of birth was allocated to me based on my reading age rather than my chronological age. So the headmaster looked at me, gave me a passage, I read it, and he said, well, a lot of people coming here don't even understand what's on this piece of paper and you can read it, therefore you must be X plus two or three or four or whatever number of years. And that was, that's how my date of birth was established. Wow. Now, is that the birthday that you celebrate these days? Well, that was very interesting because uh, I don't know any other. So that having been established, it's a birthday that I celebrate nowadays. Of course, if I take you back to Bo Sierra Leone in those days, we did not celebrate birthdays. That was, not a, that was not an occasion that was on the uh, child's calendar, and certainly not a child of my own background. So the first time I actually celebrated birthdays was much, much at a much older age when you know I went to secondary school and people asked me what date I was born. And I said, well, I don't know, but here it is, uh, as was written down when I went to school. And they started sending me gifts and so on on those dates. So... Um, and that's the date that I celebrate now. Yes, I do indeed. Yes. That's quite interesting. 
was school free or was it a paid situation? So what was one of the reasons why, you know, other children weren't going to school other than just the priorities of the family? There were several reasons why children weren't going to school. The first was that children were seen as a kind of commodity. They were there to help run family traditions, family businesses. My aunt was running, was a seamstress, and she went to the local Lebanese shops and bought materials and made dresses. And I would help her to go out and sell them and collect the money and so on. And that was really what I was cut out for at that age. School was not entirely free. The fees were quite low, but there were expectations that family would buy uniforms, they'd buy school, they'd buy shoes, they'd buy um, books and so on. And that was enough to put a lot of people off because those commodities were not cheap. So uh, there were lots of barriers, really. And of course, there was the cultural, you know, if somebody hadn't been to school themselves, they didn't really appreciate the value of a child going to school. So it was just the norm that, you know, you stayed at home and um, you carried on in the family tradition. Mm. Now, fast forward us back to that point where you're studying under the streetlight. Yes. First of all, my, my uncle had fought in the Second World War in Burma. And uh, he fought the Japanese trying to take over India. And they were successful. He fought with the Allies. And we won that war. He came back with the promise that he'd be offered, given a job, which he was. So where we lived was relatively comfortable in the sense that we had electricity. We didn't have running water. But it meant that and electricity was not always there. The generators were switched on at a certain time of day, switched off at a certain time later on in the day. Also, electricity was quite expensive. So it wasn't just a matter of me coming home and saying, right, I want to retire into my little uh, room or wherever, a little space and study. Uh, that just wasn't possible because of the cost of electricity and its relatively well, rel- relative inavailability. So I said to myself, well, I need to do my homework, I need to read, I want to study hard. And the only way I could was to go out onto the roads and s- sit under a streetlight. And I would do my studies under the streetlight. And there were two things that made me come back in. The first was I either fell asleep while I was studying, or the mosquitoes got me, overwhelmed me, overwhelmed me that I had to come back indoors. So um, that was that was that was life as it was, Sean. But I, I worked extremely hard. You know, I got through primary school. That's great. Now, once you get to high school age, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you ended up uh, going to a boarding school. Not immediately. I was still going to my, what you call high school, we call a secondary school over there. I walked, and that was a distance of some five miles from home each way. And I did that for, it was a five-year, the secondary curriculum is divided into two. The first bit of it is five years to what we call ordinary leveled exams, O-levels. And then the next two years, you drop the number of subjects 
so that you specialized in whatever it is that was going to take you to university and you did what was called advanced levels. I did all my O-levels, my O-level curriculum as a, as a, as a day, day scholar. So I walked there. When I passed my ordinary level exam, I did very well. I was in a Roman Catholic school and the priests were very impressed. They sat me down one day and said, well, you know, we see that you're probably going to have a very good future. If we can improve on that in any way, what can we do? And I said, well, if you could take me into boarding school, that would be a great help. So I did go into boarding school for those last two years. And that was obviously a great help. Yeah. Now paint the picture for me. You're walking five miles, you know, to and from. What's the visual around you? You're just walking through, you know, blocks in the town and, you know, like, like what's a young student, you know, <laughs> seeing um, on your way to and from home on each of those walks? Okay. Now, the school was situated a little bit outside of town. When the Roman Catholics came into our town, they wanted to build a big secondary school, and they started off in town. But soon the school became very popular because of their success, and lots and lots of people wanted to send their children to the school, so they needed more space. And the only place they could find space was actually in the suburbs. Well, when, when I say suburbs, they actually went out of town and found a bush, lots and lots of acres of land, which they commissioned, which they bought. And it, the school is still there. And uh, that's, that's, so that's where the school was situated. So, so the question, what did I see? First of all, I started off in town and I walked. Uh, there was obviously traffic on either side of the road. I walked by on the pave, what you'd call, there wasn't really much of a pavement. I used to walk on the road, and when the car came along, I moved over onto the side of the road and waited, waited till it passed. And about two-thirds of that distance was actually in town. The remaining third was just a bush road, as it were. Well, when I say bush road, it was paved. But that's where I walked with no houses, just trees on either side. And then I walked into the compound, which was the school. So that's, that's, that's how it went. Interesting. Now, while you're in school, um, you can let me know where this happens, but you get presented with an opportunity to study medicine. Tell me more about how that happened and, and what was the opportunity? Well, it didn't quite present quite as obviously as that. I started off, first of all, I've always, I'd always wanted to be so uh, first of all, I wanted, I've always, I'd always wanted to go abroad to do something more than I was doing back in Sierra Leone. So that was my first ambition. And when I started, I had a hernia as a young boy, and I was taken into the local school, local hospital, and I had that operated on by a team comprising. An anesthetist, what we call anesthetist, you probably call an anesthesiologist. She was British trained and also an Indian surgeon. He too had trained in India and also in England. And they were both working together as a team and they treated me. And I was extremely impressed with the care that I got. 
And that's where I began to get the idea that perhaps, you know, there was something in this profession called medicine. And I started to nurture that idea, and it grew on me as I was studying through my O-level courses. It, during the O-level courses, you take all subjects, so you, you, you don't really specialize in anything. You take English. Of course, there are subjects that are compulsory. You had to take mathematics. You had to take English. And I was also very lucky in that I, I learned uh, things like Latin, French, foreign other uh, as two foreign languages as well as other normal school subjects like geography history etc now when i got to the end of my o levels and i took my o levels and i got very good grades in my o levels that's where i had to make a decision then because the subjects that you took for your advanced level uh, your a levels determined the kind of career that you might do. So, for instance, if you did physics, uh, mathematics, and so on, you were probably more inclined to be an engineer, whereas if you did things like chemistry, physics, biology, things of that ilk, then that could take you more towards the medical field. So I consciously at that point decided to take subjects that would take me into medicine. And that's what I did. And I, at the end of it all, I got very good grades and I decided to take the plunge and to apply abroad. Now, when I applied, I was obviously very conscious of two things. First of all, I didn't have any money to pay for myself to come abroad. Secondly, that was a huge ambition. Not many people had actually, probably only one student in my whole school had actually gone to Australia based on the results of his exams for as long as I could remember. But two things happened. The first was that on the basis of my advanced level exams, I was offered a government scholarship, and it was also an international scholarship, so I could take it to wherever I had uh, the opportunity to study. And second, I had a school teacher who came from just outside Manchester in England. And she said, oh, Manchester is a great place. It's one of the best medical schools in England and so on. You must give it a go. And I thought, well, this is a great ambition. I mean, you know, the chances that I'll get into Manchester are so small. There were 200 places for thousands of students. And of course, you know, they gave priority to their own homegrown candidates. Nonetheless, I took my teacher's advice, I applied, and I was shocked and obviously very pleased that I, I got awarded a place to come and study medicine in Manchester. That's fantastic. When you show up there the first day, what, what's that experience like and, and uh, what was your general experience during medical school? Well, let me take you back a little bit, Sean. Here is a young boy. He'd never come out, well, I'd come to Freetown, which was the capital of uh, Sierra Leone, slightly more advanced than Bo. The first time I got into what you call an elevator, a lift, was in Freetown, and I was completely bemused by what this structure was. You know, you press the button, a door opened, you walked into it, 
and it took you up or down. And that was quite an experience. I got used to that quite quickly. And in the last few days before I came to England, I'd, first of all, I'd never flown in an airplane. I, I, I knew what airplanes were and so on, but I'd never actually been in one myself. But just before we left the British Council, which is a, a voluntary organization run by the British government, uh, had a mission in Freetown. And one of the things they did was, they did lots of things. They fostered relationship, educational relationships between England and Sierra Leone and other countries. One of the things they did was they had uh, two evening programs where they assembled everybody that was coming over to the UK and did a crash induction course. Told you what life was going to be like in England when you arrived, the kinds of shops that you should go to to buy your warm clothing. Remember, I was coming from somewhere where the temperatures were very high to a cold, temperate climate. So uh, I had to have all that kind of advice. And one of the things they said to me was, uh, well, do you have any uh, friends or people you know in England? I said, no, I don't know anybody there at all. So they said to me, when you arrive in London, if you get stuck and you can't find any which way to go, there will be people from the British Council at the airport. They'll have quite obvious desks that you can see, signposted and so on. Just go to one of them and say who you are and that you've been through the British Council induction course and they will help you. So in terms of uh, cultural shocks, first of all, I got into an airplane. I thought, how is this thing going to take off? You know, it weighed so many tons and there were all these people in it and, you know, it looked very heavy and so on. It was quite an experience. We arrived in London on a cold, grey evening having been wandering around in Freetown in warm, tropical climate, I arrived in London feeling very cold. And of course, I didn't have anyone to uh, show me where to go. So I looked for this British Council individual and I found the desk. And the guy said to me, oh, yeah, I'm from the British Council. Just wait here. There are lots of other students coming from other parts of the world. We've got a van sitting outside of the uh, airport. I'll take you all to our little hostel in London, which I was very obviously very pleased and grateful for. We were taken to this hostel in central London. What I didn't realize at the time was that this was one of the most upmarket parts of London. <laughs> and uh, I was in this hostel. I had to pay a nominal fee because obviously they didn't want they weren't able to do that for free but they collected a small amount of money from individual for their boarding and I stayed in London for about a week or so before I went up to Manchester so I'd arrived about one week or so before university was due to open so that I can orientate myself a little bit into the climate and the general atmosphere now one interesting tale was that um, when I opened my suitcase first thing in the morning, I wanted to brush my teeth, comb my hair, and I realized to my annoyance that I'd forgotten my toothbrush, my toothpaste, and my comb. Oh, no. So I thought, oh, dear, oh, dear. I think I'd better walk into a, a little corner shop on the road 
uh, and buy myself those. Because the sort of thing that you could do in Boa Freetown, if you walked out of your house, you only had to walk about two, three minutes, and there was a little corner shop on every road where you could buy all these things. And I assumed quite naively that this was the sort of arrangement in London. Well, I got out of London, and I was completely overwhelmed. I just didn't know what I was seeing. You know, the crowds, the tall buildings, the grandeur of the place. And I saw this shop, the like of which I'd never seen before. It looked very grand. It certainly looked like a shop, but I I walked into it, and there was somebody standing at the door in a suit, in some sort of uniform and a hat and so on. And I went up to him and I said, sir, I'm new to London. This is my first day, my first full day in London. And I forgot to buy, I forgot to bring my comb and my toothbrush and my toothpaste. And I'd like to come into your shop to buy all these materials. So this gentleman looked at me very sympathetically and he said, well, sir, I think the shop that you really want is quite a long way down the road. Just carry on down the road. And about 20 minutes on, turn left, and it's all there. You can't miss it. Now, what I didn't realize about this particular shop at the time was that it was probably one of the most upmarket shops in the whole of London. It's a place called Harrods. And this is where <laughs> millionaires and people of that ilk you know, go in to buy their goods and so on. So that was my first uh, experience of, of, of England. It was quite an interesting matter. Welcome to London. Yes, indeed. When I was recounting this story to my friends uh, when I got to university. So anyway, I got to Manchester and I'd already reserved a place in what we call a hall of residence, which is uh, accommodation allocated allocated owned by the university for its students. Now, universities, I'm sure, in every uh, country in the world can't all provide accommodation for their students. Some of the students have to live in town off-site and there was accommodation for some on-site. Now, newly arrived uh, candidates, students, were housed, if they wanted to, on on the university campus. And then when you got more mature in your second year or your third year, you could then move out into accommodation outside. So I lived in a hall of, I'd already booked a place in a hall of residence. So um, that made life a lot easier for me. One of my first experiences, other experiences, there were many, was I hadn't seen snow ever mm. in my life because I lived in a, in, a, in a climate where there wasn't snow. And that was quite an experience. One evening, it was about December, I arrived in September and I made lots of friends, and they all knew where I'd come from, and they were very keen that it snowed. It didn't always snow in Manchester every winter, but it, it snowed very heavily this particular winter, and I hadn't realized it was snowing outside. So one of my friends came, knocked on my door, and said, look, there's something I want to show you. And he took me outside, and there it was, snow for the first time. I was overwhelmed. I'd never seen anything of the sort. So, um, you know, life was quite an experience when I arrived. 
Yeah, that, that's a set of new experiences. Now, going back to the academic portion, how was the academic experience once you got there? It was tough. I had come from a school where I thought I was very good. I was probably near the top of my school. Well, because what they do in higher education is they take all of these top of the school individuals and then put them all in one place. So whereas in your old school, you were competing against people who you were, you felt you were academically superior to, now you are thrown into an atmosphere where you are having to compete, if you like, with people who were also the top of their academic grades. And of course, a lot of these were homegrown individuals. So they were obviously well-versed in other things that I hadn't really been as versed in. You know, uh, the Vietnam War, for example, was in progress when I came to Manchester. And I wasn't really as aware of current affairs when I arrived as they were. For example, you know, they listened to radio, they listened to television every evening and they could see these things. We didn't have a television. I had a little radio that I listened to once a week and so on. So I was not as conversant with uh, current affairs as they were. So there was a lot of catching up to do. So academically, I was having to compete with people who were top of the game. And it was really quite a struggle in the first year or so. And particularly having now to study brand new subjects, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, pathology, and so on. And uh, these were all entirely new. So I really had to bury myself in my books during that um, those initial years until I really got myself out of water, as it were. So it, academically, it was very tough, but I, I, I gave it a good go and I, 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 did, I worked extremely hard. Yeah, I mean, this whole story is a kind of story of resilience. So great to see that you could push through that. Now, what about communication while you're there? Were you able to have any communication with your family? Good question. Uh, obviously, as a youngster coming over here, I was very lonely. I wanted always to be in communication with my family. Remember, this was the days when we had no mobile phones, no cell phones. And even uh, ordinary telephone uh, technology was very uh, rudimentary. You know, you had to dial through an operator who then put you through to an international operator who then put you through to the Sierra Leone operator who then put you through to the bow operator. So you can imagine the cascade of uh, points that you had to go through in order to get you to the other point, to the other side. Uh, that was telephones. Letters took about four or five weeks. So an airmail letter that I wrote probably got from Manchester to Freetown in about two days. And it took about four weeks from Freetown to Bow to be delivered to my family. Wow. You know, you can imagine, therefore, communication then is not like communication now. I had several occasions where I wanted to talk to my family in Bow. They didn't have a telephone in their house, but they happened to have to know a very nice lady who probably had one of the few telephones, working telephones, uh, in the whole of Bow. Now, people had telephones. Often they didn't work. 
because they didn't pay their bills and so on. They were cut off and so on. The, the only person that we knew that had a working telephone was this lady. So what my aunt and my mother used to do was to go to her and make an appointment and say, you know, our son would like to ring us on such and such a date at such and such a time. And they would arrive. So we'd all agree on this particular time. And I knew this lady's number. And I knew the lady because I, you know, I bumped into her when I was back there. And either of them would come to this lady's house at seven in the morning. And there was a whole queue of other people there because she had the only working phone in the whole locality. And there were lots of people ringing from other parts of the world, like me, you know, who'd gone to the States, who'd gone to Canada, who'd gone to Germany and so on, wanting to ring their families. So the phone would ring, she'd pick it up, she'd look through the hall and say, ah, Mrs. So-and-so, it's your son on the phone. So that person would come over to the phone and this would happen through the day. And by the time it was my mother's turn to talk to me, it was probably about two o'clock in the afternoon. She'd been waiting about four hours. Somebody had to pay for this call and that was me. So we had all the questions prepared and it was, how's my brother? How's, how's the family? You know, how's everybody and how's the weather and, and so on. It had, it had to be, it was a very important uh, telephone conversation. Sometimes you'd be cut off in the middle of it all. You know, you'd been waiting to make this call for a month. You get on it, you speak for about two, three minutes, and then the line goes dead. And then you try again and maybe you don't succeed. So you mm. try again a month later and so on. But somehow we did, we did manage to uh, to keep in touch. But, you know, life was very tough in those days. Yes, indeed. Now, let's go back to school. So you graduate with a bachelor's in medicine, and then you go to graduate school. I think that's where you met your wife, correct? Okay, the way the uh, medical system works is quite different from other, other graduate other courses. You okay. do five years. It was a standard length of the medical cu- medical curriculum if you had all the correct qualifications, which I did. Uh, if you didn't, you did six. And if you wanted to do an extra degree, you did one more. So, uh, you know, you could extend the medical course that way. But I did the standard five-year course. Now, at the end of it, well, you did some stints in hospitals, but it wasn't really enough. So what had then happened was... All your subsequent training is entirely in hospital. So the postgraduate part of a medical course is actually all as you work. In England, as I'm sure in America, you did, you did a certain period after you graduated from medical school. Uh, we call it house jobs. I think it's called internships in, in the US, where you did a year, six months of medicine, six months of surgery, perhaps another six months or something else, like uh, accident and emergency uh, medicine. And then you decide what you want to do thereafter in terms of specialization, either to become a general practitioner, to become a gynecologist, to become a surgeon, and so on. I'd already decided through my medical course that I wanted to train as a surgeon. So when I finished my house jobs, which was about a year, year and a half later after medical school, What you then do is you go into uh, hospitals that would take you. The competition was actually very, very heavy, uh, especially for surgical um, jobs. And you apply for the job at a higher grade from your internship. 
and you train and then you move on up the scale and during that time you study so you study in your own time you don't actually go into back to school as it were you don't go into university so you you study in your own time and there is a set curriculum and you've got to do certain things you know you've got to study human anatomy at a much higher level you've got to do things like physiology you've got to do biochemistry you've got to do surgery and so on and then you t- you take a whole series of exams as you go along so it's actually quite a tedious business i mean in those days it could take anything up to 10 to 15 years from when you finished medical school to when you were at the top of the scale now ready to become what we call a consultant in england what you call attending surgeons or attending physicians in 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 the united states so it it was quite a long process and it took me through several cities in england i started first of all in manchester and then i came down to southampton which is on the city on the south coast of england and then i ended up in london and that's where i i met my wife as a trainee um and we got married sometime later and i carried on studying and i finished my studies got my degrees and the first uh, job as a, a top what you might call a top attending physician was actually in the middle east we decided uh, we'd probably had enough of england and we were keen for adventure so we went to oman where we were part of a um a group that went to establish a new medical school over there so it was quite an exciting sort of a job the money wasn't very good uh, there were countries in the middle east that paid considerably more money than did oman but we we enjoyed the life it was really very good we it, it was and what type of work did you do helping them establish that well i went there as a as a consultant surgeon and also i'd done quite a lot of academic work while i was uh, training in england and they had decided to establish a new medical school it was all built state of the art also built a brand new tertiary hospital that was going to be part of the uh, teaching hospital system in the capital and i worked as a consultant surgeon so day to day i was offering medical services to people who required you know medical care of doing operations and so on also teaching doctors who were training under me this is what you normally do as part of your normal day to day job but in addition to that i was taken on to be part of the team that set up this new medical school very exciting here was a brand new medical school and they had their first uh, departments of anatomy physiology biochemistry surgery medicine and so on and i slotted into that into that teamwork and we uh, there were there were also lots of doctors from the states from uh, other parts of europe from australia from canada and we all formed a team and developed the curriculum for the students and i was actually very proud that in the time that i was there the very first doctors that we trained were coming on board so it was a matter of some pride to know that you know some of the work that i'd done was beginning to bear fruition while i was there 
So that that's was, great. That was quite an exciting part of my life. Absolutely. Now you, at some point, decided you wanted your eldest daughter to complete high school in the UK, and you also didn't want her sent away as you were. So you decided to come back to London. Is that correct? Correct. correct. Yes, you're absolutely right about the story. In those days, there were lots of expatriate workers in Oman, where we where we were. The capital was Muscat. And they had schools that catered for young children, but only, only up to a certain level. That has now been corrected, incidentally, since we left. They've now got a curriculum that goes all the way up to university level if they wanted to. But we got to the stage where our daughter came to the top of the school that she was in, and the choice was either to send her to boarding school in England or to all come back to England. Uh, having sort of uh, been separated from my own family, I thought that, um, you know, the best thing for her really was for all of us to come back. And so I started to look for jobs in the UK and I managed to get a very good job in London. We came back and my daughter went to a, a good school. And so that's how that's how we decided to come back to school to, to, to London. Yeah, that's a that's a journey. Now, I want to fast forward to a really pivotal part of your professional career. 2010, you're working at a private hospital in West London, and sadly, a patient dies. Uh, Walk me through this story. Okay, interesting story. I mean, I've been a consultant of many years standing now, and I treated many, many thousands, in my view, of people who owed their lives to me. This was just a routine part of my day, An orthopedic surgeon in this private hospital came to me one evening and he said, oh, David, I operated on this chap. He's 66 years of age. He's quite a big chap. He's obese. Uh, He's complaining of abdominal pain and you are an abdominal surgeon. Would you see him? So I said I would. And I went and saw this individual. And sure enough, he had abdominal pain. I set up a whole series of things to do for him that evening. He had a scan the following day, and ultimately I got on to operate on him. He had perforated his light bowel, his colon. This is quite a serious condition. About a third of people who get it, however well treated, do die. There were a number of problems in the hospital. Uh, They didn't have an operating theatre when I wanted to operate. They did not have an anaesthetist to operate with me when I wanted to operate. So there were delays in operating on this chap, but none of it was really my fault. This patient died ultimately. He was very sick anyway, and I think he probably would have died, whatever, whatever the circumstances, because the condition that killed him was a very severe one. Hmm. And however, when he died, the hospital held a very rapid inquiry. It was a private hospital. Their reputation obviously was going to be harmed if they you know, were held responsible in any way for this patient's death. So they had to find what I believe was a scapegoat to hang this man's death on, and I happened to be the one at the top of the, uh, the chain. So wow. I was I was blamed for this man's death. I was prosecuted in a, in, a, in a court of law, 
and I was sent to prison for two and a half years, which was obviously a very sad turn of events, only to say, first of all, that this man was probably going to die. He had a very severe abdominal condition that kills people. I was working in an atmosphere where I didn't have all the tools that I wanted to do what I wanted to do for him. I was also handicapped by the fact that where I was working, I didn't have the correct team of people that I was working with. I found to my uh, anguish that when I gave instructions to the people who were around me, these instructions were not carried out. They should be held responsible for their own actions. And yet it was all, the whole affair was blamed on me. And they all ganged up. They made together a very, very good case against me. And I went, I went to prison. Now, one of the issues that came out of all of this, of course, was that uh, there is, you, you know, we hear a lot about racism and racial tensions in, in the United States. But make no mistake, it happens in England too. It's perhaps a lot more subtle. It's not as blatant as happens in America. You know, we don't get shot. Our, our policemen don't carry guns and so on. But racism still exists in many, many aspects of life in, in, in England. It happens in medicine, for example, where opportunities are denied to people because of the color of their skin. It happens in the criminal justice system where uh, people of color are prosecuted for misdemeanors far more often than their white counterparts. If you get, if you get convicted of a crime, for the same crime, you get a harsher punishment if you if you, if you're a man of a person of color, than if you're white and so on. So the mm. the racial problems that exist in the United States make no mistake they do happen in England, and this was undoubtedly a factor in my case, because lots and lots, probably hundreds if not thousands of patients die in hospitals every year, and many people feel that these deaths are probably unnecessary but they don't get prosecuted. Mm. A very small number of uh, people get prosecuted, but the vast majority of them happen to be people of color, and many more of them get sent to prison. So there was a huge racial element in this whole prosecution. So that, that, was, that was one of my encounters of racism in England. I had encountered many, many other episodes. But that, that was probably a career-ending uh, episode, unfortunately. Well, I mean, that's so, yes, incredible. You've done all of this work, you know, so far that we've talked about to kind of punch through these odds. And, you know, you keep prevailing. And now you find yourself, you know, sitting you know, in a prison cell. I mean, how do you find the motivation and the wherewithal to, to stay focused? And how did you, how did you tackle this from a as an individual and then from a legal standpoint? Good, good point. Now, there are several issues here. First of all, where I was was a life-threatening situation. Okay, it wasn't a life sentence that I was given. It was a two-and-a-half-year sentence. But nevertheless, my colleagues who are under scrutiny, when they've been under these sorts of circumstances, have actually killed themselves. One doctor in England kills themselves every two weeks on average 
because of the pressure of litigation, the pressure of the job, etc. So it is it is a difficult uh, situation to be in. In prison, lots of prisoners hang themselves out of desperation when they find themselves in the situation. So where I was was a life-threatening, even though it wasn't a life sentence, it was nevertheless a life-threatening situation. So the first thing I had to do was to stay alive. Uh, motivation was my family, my friends, who were all behind me. They knew I'd, been, I'd had a distinguished career, and this was really uh, something that was completely unbecoming of me. I'd lost my job because as soon as I got charged with the offence of killing this patient, my salary was stopped and no money. My children were now in university and finishing university, etc. My reputation had now completely gone through the roof, you know, been shattered. I'd built a very big practice in, in, in the west of London, not just my government service, but also my private practice. And I must admit, I had a very good reputation and I was, you know, earning a reasonable amount of money doing what I was doing. So my entire life was shattered. As you say, I'd overcome a number of odds. You know, the, the, the chances of my ending up as a surgeon in England from where I started were so minuscule. And yet I'd overcome all of those barriers and made it. And then there was this final barrier that got me. And I was now sitting in a cell with criminals, real criminals, people who were terrorists, who were murderers, who were rapists, and so on, and finding myself having been at the forefront of the surgical field, saving lives, now finding myself sitting in a prison cell that was a very harrowing experience, as you can imagine. But I had my family, I had my friends, and I had the motivation to carry on and, and uh, to try and get through this. Now, how did you tackle this on the legal front to, to right this injustice? The legal front, well, I think you interviewed Dr. Jenny Vaughan. Yes, uh, we had fairly, a great conversation. Fairly together. recently. She was the person that really headed the team that got me out of this, because where I was, I was in such a state of despair and desperation that even the motivation to lead appeal was really very, my motivation was very weak. But it was Jenny that instilled, instilled the confidence in me that we could do it. She read all the, uh, the, the, the transcripts from the trial and the papers and so on, and she could see the injustice. She could see the racism at work. Remember, Jenny is a white lady, and yet she fights, for in, she fights injustice. She fights for justice. And she saw the injustice of all of this. Uh, she led the team that uh, put together a new team of, of lawyers, and she got together a team of other doctors and so on to have a look at this case. And we, and together with my family, my family were also very, very determined to see me get through all of this. And she led the appeal. And as uh, you probably know, we, we won the appeal in, 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 in the High Court, in the Court of Justice. And that, that, was, uh, that was a big day. I mean, that's phenomenal. And, and this wasn't just, uh, I think, a, 
a normal victory, right? I mean, you had to once again overcome great odds because overturning or winning this type of appeal was something that was atypical. Yes, indeed. This was probably the first time that an out-of-time appeal had been won. Remember, in, in, I don't, I'm not very conversant with the state of the law in the United States, but in England, when you get convicted of a criminal offence, you have 28 days in which to appeal. And of course, I was taken away straight to prison as I was convicted. So those 28 days passed and we hadn't lodged an appeal. Now, any chance that you have of winning that appeal were in those first 28 days. We lost that time. This appeal was many years. It was The conviction was in 2013. The appeal was in 2016, so some three years down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the odds of our winning this appeal were so minuscule. And yet, you know, Jenny fought hard with us, my family, and all my, there was a whole group of friends who were actually donating money to pay for lawyers so that we could overturn this appeal. So this was not an ordinary uh, overturn, but, you know, the injustice was very clear. There were racial overtones in all of this. The racism of it all was very obvious because of all the six people that had been convicted of this crime in the previous few years, only one of them was white, and even that white person wasn't even English, she was Spanish. You know, the odds were hugely stacked against people of color in, in, in the whole so-called criminal justice system in, 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 in England. Wow. Now, since then, has that victory for you personally and for your family, has that changed any of the dynamics in, in the UK? Yes, there are lots of things happening. Well, personally, for me, I lost my career. But I, you know, I lost my place in the medical register, for example. I was temporarily suspended from the medical register. I've now been restored on the basis of overturning of that conviction. And also the, our medical regulator, the General Medical Council, also held their own investigation into this case that lasted six weeks. And in the end, they found that I'd done nothing wrong in all of this. Uh, They looked at this case very, very forensically. And at the end of it all, I'd done nothing wrong. My only mistake, if you call it a mistake in all of this, was that I trusted people that I was working with that are perhaps obviously looking back I shouldn't have. The medical, Mm. medical treatment is very complex. You require a whole team of people. You can't deliver medicine on your own, as you, I'm sure you know. You need your nurses, you need other doctors, you need the technicians, you need the hospital system to provide the wherewithal, the the tools that you need, the operating theater, the clean environment, the safe environment for the patient, etc. Now, lots of things were broken in all of this. You know, the environment that the hospital provided wasn't as safe as I'd been led to believe. You know, they didn't have an operating theater, for example, when I wanted to operate They didn't have any anesthetists when I wanted to operate. They had a whole team of people who perhaps, you know, didn't really stand up to the standard that I had expected. And and yet I trusted all of them to help me through this case, because through the, this is how medicine works. You know, you have to, you have to have faith and belief in the people that you're working with, because you can't do everything all by yourself. And that's where the system broke down. Unfortunately, 
that system has still not been fixed in this particular hospital, in spite of what happened in that case, which is a tragedy, wow. really, because the family of this man that died were led to believe that it was all my fault. And yet, you know, the case had now been overturned in the criminal court. It had now been overturned in the medical court. And so, you know, I'd done nothing wrong, but they, they hadn't really got the answers as to why their loved one died. Now, in terms of the law, um, Jenny has formed a team that's been lobbying uh, the legal system. There were several things that were wrong with the law. First of all, we know the racism, when we're not going to fix that any day soon because it's an entrenched and ingrained problem in the whole fabric of the profession. But we're working at that. But the other thing was that the judge who was asked to adjudicate in this case didn't even know what his brief was. Wow. He had not adequately instructed the jury as to what the legal standards were to convict somebody. In my case, the, the jury did not understand the, the, the technicalities of the case, and they said, so my lord, we don't understand what it is that we're adjudicating on. And yet he didn't give them the correct instructions on how to pass a criminal sentence. So that has now hopefully been fixed. That was fixed in the High Court. The High Court judges who overturned this conviction were very critical of that particular legal system that allowed me to be convicted of a crime when the jury didn't really understand what they were adjudicating on. I mean, it's a little bit like somebody comes in to have an operation and I give a scalpel to a junior doctor and I say, go take out his appendix. And the junior doctor says, but sir, I've not done this before. I don't understand. Well. I've told you, just cut there, cut there, take it out and stitch him up and you're done. Really, that's what happened. The jury said, we don't understand what we are adjudicating on. The judge did not instruct them properly. So the law was in a bit of a mess in that regard. And that's now all hopefully been fixed. And again, I give a huge amount of credit to Jenny for taking the initiative to take on this case because uh, we do have a lot of work to do. The other work that's also being done on the back of my case and others is this whole business of blame. Now, in mm. medicine, medicine is as fallible a profession as any other, like the law, like, you know, or any other. It's, it, is, it is, after all, carried by people who err. To err is human. Mistakes are made. Now, when mistakes are made in medicine, Unfortunately, what happens, particularly well, in this country, and we believe it happens in, in your country as well, Sean, is that rather than try and correct the system, individuals are held to blame. And I think that is counterproductive because all that happens is we don't learn from our mistakes in the same way, for example, as the airline industry learns from their mistakes. Now you hear of all, every time a plane crashes, every time there's a mistake in the airline industry, there is a huge amount of resource put into investigating it and putting it right and making sure that it doesn't happen again. Okay, problems do happen in the airline industry, but it is now 
probably one of the safest forms of travel on earth. And the reason they've achieved that is because they've taken away the whole business of blame and try to learn when mistakes are made. Unfortunately, medicine isn't doing that, not yet. And this is one of the other things that Jenny and, uh, 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 and her team are also trying to do to correct the whole business of uh, blame uh, to instigate learning rather than blame as the way forward. So there have been a lot of ramifications of my case in, in this country in terms of the, the way the law works in these sort of cases, the way medicine works in these sorts of cases, the way expert witnesses, you know, medical people who are taken and asked to look at these cases to decide whether it's a crime or whether a crime has been committed or whatever, Unfortunately, that's, that was a broken system because there was no regulation of these people. Anybody could call themselves an expert witness and uh, you know they could stand up in court and say all sorts of things about what they believed in. It's not really what, you know, medicine is not quite like that. It's a complicated field. And being somebody who adjudicates in that sort of area has to really understand what their brief is. And that's hopefully one of the things that we hope to change. So there is quite a lot of change in the air, you know, based on my case and the cases of uh, a few other black doctors and, and doctors from ethnic minorities whose cases have come to the consciousness of the nation. No, it's it's uh, just kind of great to hear that evolving and the change that you are a part of. Now, you speak publicly to raise awareness for these issues, racism, especially in the UK medical field. You've, you've published a book called Did He Save Lives? Well, what's one of the takeaways from that book that's worth sharing with our audience? Several things. First of all, it was only to say that adversity can be overcome. When I was working with a consultant who was my trainer many, many years ago, he heard my story. This was even before I got to where I got to at the top. And he turned around to me and he said, wow, David, if you gave me a coin to toss, it had heads on one side, tails on the other side, and I tossed it, your story is a bit like the coin landing on its side rather than on heads or tails. Mm. You know, the chances of that happening are so minuscule those are these sorts of odds that you've overcome to be where you are. And I think one of the take-home messages, as you, as you point out, is that it can be done. You know, it, adversity can be overcome. Yes. Okay, it, yes. takes, it takes a lot. It takes, obviously, your own effort. It takes a bit of luck. It takes the cooperation of the people around you. And I must say, I've worked with people who've been extremely kind. I've, I've worked with people who've been very racist, but equally... I think I've worked with some people who have been extremely kind and non-racist and, you know, who've helped me through my profession. So that's, that's one take-home message. Uh, there's another good take-home message there. You know the story of Nelson Mandela, the South African? Well, Nelson Mandela was in a system of apartheid, an iniquitous system that sent him to prison. He went to prison. He languished in prison for several years. He came out. He made a difference to his world and the world around him. And it's only to say that 
Going to prison is not the end of the world. Suffering adversity, you can use adversity to turn things around. And, and really one of the things that me, Jenny, and others are doing is going around to these medical meetings and motivating people to say that we have a lot of barriers to overcome, but we can do it. We can do it. Now, one of the things that's been happening in the UK recently is the emergence, the appearance of groups of doctors linked to various ethnic causes. For example, there's a black doctors, black surgeons network. There is a melanin medics. There is a British Association of Physicians of Indian origin. There are associations of doctors from Nigeria, from Pakistan, and from other parts of the world. The reason that these groups have come into being is because their causes are not being served by the mainstream medical organizations that should be serving their, their, their purposes. Mm. And one of the things that we, uh, I certainly am, am trying to see is that these are good pressure groups. You know, if we're ever going to change the system, it's going to be very difficult to do so as individuals, but collectively as a group. So as a group of black surgeons, we want our, our voices to be heard. If a black surgeon gets into difficulty, they know where to turn to get pastoral care, to get advice and so on. Something that was completely lacking almost when I my case was ongoing. And I think I'm certainly encouraging these people to fight their cause because there are lots of things that are really wrong in our medical, legal, and other systems. And the only way we're going to be able to bring about change is to be a pressure group that works from within to try to instill change into a lot of these broken systems. So that's, 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 that's another issue. And then there's the issue of uh, the strength of friends and family. I would never have been able to do this without the help of Jenny and my family and, the, and you know, people who've sort of set up a group of friends of David Selu. And, um, you know, we've all worked very hard and we've all been very close together and now brought together as a team. And I think it's very heartening to look back and see how there are friends out there who are willing to help. Sure, you make a lot of enemies in whatever work of life that you are. And I now know who my friends are and I now know who my enemies are. And those who are my friends have been a very close bond of friends. And I'm forever grateful to all of them, really, for you know, holding my hands and helping me out of this. And really what the purpose of the book is to thank them all, but also to show the injustices that lie within the system. Because I think one of the, the things that people do when they finish reading my book, especially if they are people from ethnic minorities, they'd say, but there for the grace of God go I. It could have been me. And... Okay, there are no lessons as to how you can prevent these happening. The very fact that you are who you are, your skin is a certain color, unfortunately marks you for this sort of event. So there's nothing that you can do absolutely to prevent it happening. But 
if you know that it does happen, what where the pitfalls might lie, then I think you're better armed. But I think people understand better, you know, what the problems are that we face in modern medicine when we take on a profession such as surgery, medicine, and so on. Wow, fantastic. As we're wrapping up, a couple things. First, was there a moment where, and you're obviously still, you know, fighting this fight, but was there a moment where you kind of came to peace with what you've gone through on this uh, professional journey? Yeah, I, it was very hard at the beginning. You can imagine anybody, somebody of, my background, all the work that I'd done, all the barriers that I'd overcome to be where I was, suddenly all of that was taken away. So my, my world was completely shattered. But I think what brought me peace was the knowledge that there are good people out there. In spite of the fact that the world is such a bad place, there are good people out there, people like my family, my friends, particularly Jenny, who stand up for what is good and will fight for it. And, you know, when the conviction was was finally overturned, obviously we all breathe a deep sigh of relief. The damage that had been done had already been done. You know, my career was finished, my salary had been stopped, and there was no way that I was ever going to come back to regaining any of that. My reputation had been completely shattered. And there are still people out there who say, oh, no no smoke without fire and all that kind of thing. But I've been exonerated in, in every court that I've been to since my conviction. So I take comfort in the fact that I've saved lives. One life was lost. It wasn't due to my, it wasn't my fault. But medicine and the law had missed the opportunity to make a broken system right because of wanting to met out retribution. And that's really, uh, okay, I I took comfort in everything that had happened, but I still have sadness because of the fact that the system in which I found myself still remains broken to this day. You know, there's still racism, there's still injustice, we're still not learning from mistakes. And so, you know, we've, we've got some way to go. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. That's correct, yeah. Great. Now, do you ever get back to Sierra Leone? I do. In fact, I was just about to go to Sierra Leone in March. I bought mm. my air tickets. I booked my place onto an airplane seat. And then the night before, the British government announced that all foreign travel was banned unless absolutely necessary. It meant, therefore, that if I went, there was a good chance that I wouldn't be brought back on the date that I was coming back. My travel insurance would be invalidated, etc., etc. And of course, my family wouldn't let me travel because of the, the risks involved. So I cancelled my, 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 my flight home. But yes, I've still got family in Sierra Leone. And I also do voluntary medical work in Bow. When I do go there, perhaps once a year, twice a year or so, I often some I do some work in a in, in, in a small hospital out there where I, I teach and I do some operating 
and we do some of our quality control and so on. So yes, I, I do go on average about once a year or so. Oh, that's great. Anything else you would want to share with our audience today? Well, I think we've, we've covered most of it really at the risk of uh, repetition. There is a lot of injustice out in the world. I think uh, we have to keep fighting. We hear about it more coming out of the States because of the profile and because of the way, for example, that your police force works. You know, your police carry guns. Ours in this country don't as a routine. We have a gun squad, but they are off the streets, whereas the police on the street don't carry guns. And so, you know, racism and the killings of people on the streets is more publicized, obviously, because of the way your system works. But people still die in police custody in, in England. We still suffer racism at the hands of the police. The, the whole country suffers racism to some extent. So, you know, the racism that carries on there still carries on here. We don't hear about it as much as we do when it happens in, in America. But nevertheless, there are problems. And I think we need to continue to work to really try and see how we can stamp out these iniquities in our, in our, in our society. And if my case, sad though it is, because obviously somebody did die, even though it wasn't my fault, I suffered, my family suffered. However, if my case is going to be a catalyst in any small way that's going to be bringing about any change, then it would have been worth it. That's really, that's really the message. Well, Dr. Selu, thank you again for joining us today, sharing your story. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, LaShawn. It's been a huge privilege for me talking to you, and I was very honored to be asked. And thank you very much again. Great. And thank you, everyone out there for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of True Voice, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It's very much appreciated and helps us reach more people. This is LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.